It's been an interesting and unusual series of messages as we have been doing basically an apologetic on who it is that's in the manger. You may already know who's in the manger. I'm giving you more information than you probably ever wanted, but it's helpful for those who are still trying to discover him, to understand what he's about, and to learn from various aspects of science which agrees with Scripture on who it is that this child is that's coming in the manger, that's already come in the manger, and who is coming again. Pray with me, if you would, please. Father, may the words that I speak this morning and the thoughts and the actions they may encourage in each of our lives be pleasing in your sight and beneficial to grow your grace in our lives and extend your gospel to our world by our witness of Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Together over the last three Sundays previous, we've examined the eyewitness evidence concerning the things written in the Gospels about what Jesus said and did. Then we together examined the scientific evidence found in archaeology that validates the Gospel accounts. Last week, we looked at the profile evidence that compares the attributes of God that are revealed in the Scriptures, primarily the Old Testament, and the attributes of Jesus revealed to us in the New Testament and discovered they are the same. Our goal has been to determine who the person really is that we find in the manger of Bethlehem. Today, we will plumb some of the depths of DNA evidence to answer the question, does Jesus alone match the identity of the Hebrew Messiah, or are there others? Let me begin with an illustration out of Scripture. 3,000 years ago, two women in Jerusalem came before King Solomon. Both women had recently given birth to a child. Now, one of those children was dead. And both women claimed that the remaining child was theirs. Solomon needed to identify the child and assign it to its rightful mother. Today, Solomon's task would be relatively easy. Unless the women were identical twins, they would have different genetic makeups. By testing blood from each of the women and the child, the baby's true mother could be determined without a shadow of a doubt. Today, genetic tests are routinely performed to, re, to uh, determine parentage in such cases, but Solomon did not have modern biology at his disposal. So Solomon called for a sword. Since the women could not decide between themselves, he determined that the child would be divided in half. Each would get half of the child. That would settle the matter. Solomon knew that the baby's true mother would rather yield custody of her child than to see her child killed. And moments later, when one of the women hastily gave up the baby, Solomon knew that was the child's mother. Determining identity was available to Solomon, even though it was not DNA. Recent archaeology has discovered clay pottery in which a thumbprint is clearly visible 
on each piece. Presumably, the potter used his thumbprint or her thumbprint as a personal mark. But there was no need for a national or international identification system back then. Identification was not generally a problem until modern times, our days. Before the Industrial Revolution, the world had no need for a formal system to identify. In Europe, there wasn't even a need for last names until the Middle Ages. Most people were born in a place and they lived there all their lives. People knew who you were. They were your neighbors. You were their neighbor. And outsiders were clearly identifiable. I don't know them. They're new here, was how it went. Some of this still feels true in New England, where lots of people stay put. Some of us immigrated to here. I grew up in Seattle. My wife and I, she grew up in Bellingham, are reverse pioneers. We went from west to east. But so many people stay in one place here for much of their lives. It's wonderful. Your roots go deep. Your relationships are strong. But times have changed significantly on identification. And for many years, the science of fingerprinting has been used to identify people. The patterns on the tips of the fingers are unique. Every one of us has them, and we're unique from one another. And many of the things we touch reveal those prints and can prove that we were in that spot no matter what we try to say. But in recent years, science has moved to DNA testing. DNA. Dio, I can't say Deoxyribonucleic acid. It's as close as I'm going to get. <laughs> Contains the genetic code of all known living organisms with the exception of RNA viruses. The DNA of an individual can be found in blood, hair, tissue, virtually every part of a human body. Only identical twins have the same DNA sequence. Everyone else's DNA is unique. While DNA can function like fingerprints and link an alleged criminal to a crime scene, it can do much more than that. DNA paternity and maternity testing can identify a child's father and or mother. DNA relationship testing can determine if two individuals are full or half siblings. DNA ancestry, which is being advertised every day on television nowadays, can determine ethnic origins and genealogical roots. You can discover where you came from no matter what your parents told you. (laughs) DNA testing has solved many mysteries. It has reversed the conviction of many crimes because of mistaken identity. It is a very exacting science, and it's only been touched on the surface. We have no idea how far it will go in helping determine things about us and how things will be with us as we are born and live and grow. There is a similar type of analysis to fingerprinting and DNA testing that can take us one further step into determining who is in the manger of Bethlehem. In his book, The Case for Christmas, Lee Strobel writes this, and I quote him, 
In the Jewish scriptures, there are several dozen major prophecies about the coming of the Messiah whom God would send to redeem his people. In effect, these predictions formed a figurative fingerprint that only the anointed one would be able to match. This way, the Israelites could rule out any impostors and validate the credentials of the authentic Messiah. End of quote. I pray that we will be willing to accept both the truth and the consequences of what we discover as we analyze this. This morning I want to look at just two of those prophecies and begin with the virgin birth. So if you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Isaiah 7, 14, in the Pew Bible it's page 681, Isaiah 7, 14. We read, in fact, read with me if you have it open in your Bibles. It's also on the screen. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, there are many miraculous births throughout history, throughout the world. One can read the mythologies and the writings of both the Hindu religion and the philosophy of Buddha. Ancient writings of the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians also contain miraculous birth stories. Even in Judaism and Christianity, there are miraculous births. Isaac, in Abraham and Sarah's old age, in their 90s. Ouch. Can you imagine the bus from Covenant Village coming Never mind. (laughs) And John the Baptist in Zechariah and Elizabeth's old age. But nothing is like the birth of Jesus by the Virgin Mary. A birth that has been scrutinized by more people than any other birth in the history of the world. It is only the evidence of eyewitness accounts that we are given. There's no paternity test available, so there's no DNA, literal DNA evidence that can be found. And besides, what is the DNA of God who declares to be the father of Jesus? How would we know that? He hasn't given us his DNA either. But granted, in a world of unbridled skepticism and thorough cynicism, the notion of a child being born of a woman who is a virgin is nonsense. Can you imagine being the parents of Mary and she comes to say to you, I'm pregnant. No, I wasn't with Joe. God did this. How are you at buying that? It still must be the choice of faith to believe that it really happened the way the New Testament tells us. It is the choice of my faith, I know that. It is the choice of many, perhaps most of the people who claim to be Christian. And this choice is primarily taken because we have chosen to believe in the authority and authenticity of the scripture which can be validated. 
I'm not here to attempt to prove that Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary who was raised in Nazareth and birthed in Bethlehem. While I personally believe that, it misses the point to be made, and that point is this. There is no other reported virgin birth in Hebrew history that could be used to say that perhaps another person is the promised Messiah. There is only one, Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem to Mary, the virgin, and stepdad, Joseph. Now, some have declared that Jesus knew the prophecies and then chose to fulfill them with intentionality. One cannot intentionally fulfill his or her own birth. You can't do that. It doesn't happen. Our own birth is out of our control. Some others have declared that Jesus' followers knew the prophecies and fulfilled them by writing altered history. We've heard a lot about news and history being altered these days. The reality is that there were too many people still alive when the writings of Jesus' birth were recorded, and any one of the shepherds or the magi or the members of Mary's or Joseph's family could have debunked it without difficulty. In fact, the religious leadership was looking for people to debunk everything they could about Jesus and who he declared to be. But no such people were ever found. There are certainly many people who do not believe. They choose that. But no credible debunking has ever been unearthed or recorded. And some have declared that Jesus' fulfillment was merely coincidence. Hang on to that coincidence thought. I'll get back to it in a few moments. Remember, this is only one of more than 300 messianic prophecies. And certainly this is a prophecy that could not be dismissed as either altered history or intentionally fulfilled. A second one to look at for the morning. The timing of the Messiah's coming. Turn now to Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26a. The context is extremely important. Read that at your convenience later on. But listen to this. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The word sevens in Hebrew is heptad, so it's interpreted sevens in the English translation. It will be rebuilt, that is, Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The end of the reading. At first glance, this terribly complicated or at least complex and it would take us several hours to discuss and calculate the dates it can be done I've done it several times over the years it is fun to do especially with people who like numbers it's really fun but the bottom line is so exact basically it foretells that the anointed one the Messiah would appear a certain length of time after King Artaxerxes the first issued a decree for the Jewish people to return from captivity in Persia and rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. That length of time is the formula for the rebuilding of the city itself and leads us exactly to the time when Jesus is crucified. The anointed one is cut off. 
And ultimately, as you read, to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. by Titus and the legions of the Roman army. Once again, there is nothing here that could be pre-arranged. Jesus is the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy, and the two of them together make it even more powerful. Let me give you a brief overview of the prophecy about him. This is Cliff Notes' version. Isaiah revealed the manner of the Messiah's birth by a virgin. Micah pinpointed the place of his birth, Bethlehem. Genesis and Jeremiah specified the ancestry of the Messiah, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the tribe of Judah and the house of David. The Psalms foretold his betrayal, his being accused by false witnesses, the manner of his death pierced in the hands and feet, even though crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet, the Messiah's resurrection, he would not decay, but it was said would descend on high, and on and on, 300 times specific prophecies are given about this one God was sending, the Messiah, whom we call Jesus the Christ. Jesus fulfills every prophecy given about him, with one exception, the second coming, because it hasn't happened yet. We're waiting for that. We expect him. Anytime. Here is where I turn again to the word coincidence. The coincidence at work in these prophecies and Jesus being the Messiah, I say it that way because it's statistically staggering what we have scientifically scientifically concerning Jesus Christ. In his book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner writes concerning just eight of the prophecies about Jesus. His conclusion is, that the chance of any one particular person fulfilling these eight prophecies would be one in ten to the seventeenth. That's a million billion. That's a billion a million times. He goes on to give an illustration. If you took silver dollars and covered the state of Texas to a depth of two feet... If you marked one silver dollar among them and then had a blindfolded person wander the whole state and bend down to pick up one coin, what would be the odds that person would choose the one that had been marked? He gives his own answer. The same odds that anybody in history could have fulfilled just eight of the prophecies of the Messiah. Can we, can we get into that? People are looking for this kind of help. We have science to help show us that what we believe is not only valid, it's authentic. And that's just eight of the more than 300 prophecies about Jesus. Okay, there's no mistake. The prophetic DNA, the biblical fingerprints are all over Jesus, and they're all over everything we read in the New Testament about him. How does that help me? How does that help you? What's the application? I think there are two obvious ones. The first is this. Serious Bible study is essential to giving clarity and confidence to our faith. When I say clarity and confidence, I'm not speaking about arrogance or rudeness. That is not God's way for himself, nor is it his way for his followers. I'm simply speaking about our stand on the truth 
of the scriptures. This is especially true when it comes to who Jesus is and equally true about the love God has for all people in all circumstances for all time. No one is outside of his love. No one. No one ever has been. No one ever will be. And the second practical application is this, that we get bold in proclaiming who Jesus is, that we not wither in the face of skepticism or cynicism that truly uninformed people have about Jesus. I would never call them ignorant, though they may be, but they're uninformed. They really haven't examined the evidence that we have. When I say boldness, I'm not saying pushiness. I'm simply speaking about the assurance of faith and the willingness to speak it. Jesus is Lord, period. He is. Whether we believe that or say that or not does not change it. He is. Does belief in Jesus require faith? Absolutely. But there's more than enough evidence to back the claim of who he is and what he has accomplished. We need to stand strong, and that means we need to study more diligently. We really do. Please hear this. Please hear this. There are more than 300 people involved in the life of this church. Perhaps a bit more than one-third are involved in a regular Bible study. And somewhat less are involved regularly in praying together for one another, for our church, for our community. Let's face it. Some of us are spiritually under-devoted, therefore under-informed, and as a result, some of us are clearly undernourished Christians. It need not be this way. We all can grow. If you're still living on what you learned years ago in Sunday school, come to the party. There is so much more. It is so deep. It is so broad. It is so profound. It is so life-altering. It is such an adventure to truly follow Jesus. I pray that we will choose not merely to believe, but to really engage with God and his word and his son and allow the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does. Set us on fire. The angelic host sang boldly of God's glory and might and purpose on that first Christmas Eve. May we live boldly by his grace and obediently as witnesses to his love for all people. This is the gospel. Not merely answering the question, who's in the manger, but the gospel as it is meant to be, fully received, completely believed, and totally lived every single day. Let us each be bold and take the next step in our walk with Jesus, God's Son, and our Messiah. May it truly be so for us and for Bethany and for Bethany for this community and for this community, for this state and beyond. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the corroboration of science that validates the claim 
that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah and your only beloved Son. Thank you for these things that embolden our faith, our hope, and our trust in him, as well as our love for him. Thank you for helping us to believe and to follow him. Thank you, Father, for giving us the joy of our salvation because of who Jesus is and what he has done. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.